This is an Ercasia special episode, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. Hello and welcome to another edition of Ergasia Special. My name is Brendan Byrne and I have the pleasure of being your host. In this edition of Ergasia Special, I want to make what I am calling a statement of intent. The purpose of this statement is to set out where my thinking about work and faith stands at the present point in time, as well as try and give some insight into the basic theoretical architecture that is guiding my thinking at present. I use phrases like present point in time and thinking at present precisely because I understand that my engagement with the intersection between the world of work and faith is always evolving. The more I read, the more I talk to people, the more I encounter different approaches to this subject, then, hopefully, the deeper and richer and fuller my own understanding becomes. This necessarily means that I will change over time and perhaps even contradict positions I have held in the past. But my purpose with this podcast is not to present an unyieldingly rigid position on the matter of work and faith. Rather, it is to make publicly available my own exploration of the subject so that others might undertake their own investigation of what it means to be both a person of faith and a person who works. That said, my current thinking has been deeply informed by the book we've just spent a number of episodes exploring, The Dream Betrayed, Religious Challenge of the Working Class, by the American Lutheran scholar Karen L. Bloomquist. In this work, Bloomquist presents as much a challenge to the church as to the wider structure of society and economy, arguing that the church needs to examine its internal life and practice in order to rectify its collaboration with the forces of economic and political privilege that oppress and marginalize working people. She also challenges the church to broaden its thinking about social justice, to include issues of class as well as gender and race in its identification of the sources of dehumanization and injustice. Finally, Bloomquist also challenges the church to identify and eliminate the ways in which its own inner life and structures, up to and including worship, reflect the assumptions of class privilege and contribute to the injustices flowing from classist attitudes and behaviours in wider society. In light of Bloomquist's analysis, I have been reflecting on my own understanding of the theology of work, what it should look like, and what characteristics it should or shouldn't possess. In particular, I have been conscious of what any theology of work says about the particular tradition or community from which it emerges, and the extent or otherwise to which that tradition or community can be said to be co-opted by the wider social, economic and political conventions 
operating within the culture by which it is both surrounded and which it also participates. This need has been sharpened over the past year or so by my increasing encounter with the theology of work that appears to be emerging from and operating within what might be broadly described as the evangelical wing of the church and which is deeply informed by the perspectives of those who operate from the basis of managerial, entrepreneurial or corporate executive backgrounds. This theology of work is also forming the basis for courses in work and faith being offered by theological colleges from a similarly evangelical background, whereas I am not aware of any subject on work and faith being offered by theological colleges operating from other perspectives within the church. This lack of theological diversity within the emerging field of the theology of work worries me for a number of reasons. Firstly, because a lack of broad theological perspectives only increases the likelihood of any emerging theology of work becoming both intellectually impoverished and spiritually restrictive. Secondly, because a narrowness of theological input combined with a similar narrowness of experiential background increases the likelihood of a theology of work being captured and appropriated by the surrounding dominant culture, especially when those propounding the theology are exemplars of that culture's understanding of success or legitimacy. Thirdly, a theology of work based on narrow theological or experiential grounds cannot capture the reality of those whose experience of the dominant culture differs from the experience of those propounding the theology in question. In other words, it makes it difficult, if not impossible, for that theology to speak with a voice of prophetic critique that seeks justice for those harmed by the operation of the prevailing culture. Finally, this narrowness of theology in fact betrays and denies the long history of involvement by the Church in the working class struggle for justice, from the early Methodist missions to the working poor in 18th and 19th century England, through the long sequence of papal encyclicals beginning with Rerum Novarum in 1891, to developments like the Catholic worker movement in the United States and the worker-priest movement in Europe. So with all this in mind, I want to spend some time today setting out what I think a theology of work should be about. This necessarily covers both a negative and a positive aspect. On the negative side, I want to outline what for me are three key concerns regarding the theology of work, especially as it is emerging from the evangelical perspective. On the positive side of the agenda, I want to set out what a theology of work should address, even if that involves responding from a negative perspective to certain realities about work and economy. And so, without any further ado, here is Ergasia Special Episode 3, A Statement of Intent.
I want to begin this part of my discussion by outlining what I see as the three major problems with the theology of work, especially as it is emerging from what might be generally described as the evangelical wing of the church. I am concerned about this emergence not because it is coming from the evangelical churches and thus contains a theology that I don't necessarily agree with in all times and places, but because I think it is representative of the traps the church can fall into when it attempts to engage theologically with an issue of public import. Broadly speaking, the trap which I think evangelical theologies of work fall into is the trap of appropriation. That is to say, the trap of articulating not a Christian analysis and critique of an issue so much as articulating the agenda and imperatives of the surrounding culture. In other words, the problem with a lot of evangelical theologies of work is that they tend to align the ethics of Christianity with the ethos of the economic orthodoxy of the industrialized West, that is to say, with neoliberal free market capitalism. But in just the same way that many liberation theologies have been criticized for aligning the Christian vision of human redemption too closely with the Marxist vision of economic liberation, so evangelical theologies of work tend to reflect the prerogatives, privileges and assumptions of those who benefit from corporatized capitalism, rather than analyzing and critiquing neoliberal theory and practice from the perspective of the gospel and the vision of human flourishing which that perspective entails. In doing so, it conflates Christian identity and practice with the identity and practice of neoliberal ideology. Let me be clear, in saying what I have just said, I am not attempting to either defend liberation theology or decry theologies of work that emerge from evangelical perspectives. Rather, I am arguing that where any theological perspective conflates the Christian vision of liberation and freedom with the assumptions and imperatives of any political, economic, industrial or social ideology, that perspective is mounting an argument that is less than Christian. And by less than Christian, I don't mean un- or anti-Christian. It is not my intent to accuse anyone of heresy or backsliding or of not being Christian. Rather, I mean that the argument they are mounting is insufficient from the Christian point of view. It does not say enough, precisely because it articulates a view of human personhood that falls short of the vision of innate dignity and flourishing that lies at the heart of Christian faith. Let me give a simple example from social media. From the evangelical perspective, I have seen many memes and images on social media that directly associate particular conservative politicians from Ronald Reagan to Donald Trump with Jesus. Two recent examples suffice. The first was an image of President Trump signing a decree. It showed Jesus standing over Trump, guiding his hand as he placed his signature upon the decree. The second was a billboard that appeared during the recent midterm elections in the US. It showed an image of Trump with a quotation from John 1.14, 
and the Word was made flesh. These images either depict Trump as the instrument of God or else equate the President with Jesus himself. Irrespective of one's individual position on Trump, both these images are, in my view, profoundly illegitimate because both try to reduce the Christian faith and its engagement with human reality to the prescriptions and assumptions of a particular political ideology, in this instance conservative American republicanism. In effect, both images declare that the kingdom of God and the covenantal relationship which God seeks with humankind through faith are identical to the policies and practices of political conservatism generally and the Trump administration particularly. From the leftist side of things, I have seen many a meme or statement on social media declaring that Jesus was a radical anarchist or socialist or feminist or environmentalist and so on and so forth. Now, aside from the fact that all these labels and titles are anachronisms that bear no connection to the social, political and economic realities of Jesus' time, this once again is an attempt to add appropriation, an attempt to align the person of Jesus and the identity of Christian faith with a particular political and ideological perspective. Now, don't get me wrong, I do think Jesus was a radical, even subversive figure who made a lot of trouble for the political, social and economic establishment of his time. The point is that his radicalism was not the product of a particular political ideology, nor was his subversion directed toward the ends of any political program. So to declare that Jesus was an anarchist or anything else simply misses the point about who he was and the ends to which his ministry was directed. So what you need to bear in mind with all that follows is that although the negative aspects of this statement of intent are a responsive critique to the theologies of work that are emerging from the evangelical wing of the church, it doesn't require too much adjustment to see how they might also apply to other perspectives within the church. That said, what are the issues as I see them? The first issue is the assumption that a Christian theology of work must first accept the fundamental rightness of the prevailing economic orthodoxy. In particular, theologies of work that emerge from the evangelical wing of the church seem to operate as though the ethos of free market capitalism and the ethos of Christianity are one and the same thing. However, the task of any Christian theology of work is not to accept the rightness of any system of economic organization, but to critique all such systems from the standpoint of the kingdom of God. This standpoint declares the ineradicable dignity of all people based on their creation in the likeness and image of the divine, and it forcefully critiques any system or the particular aspects of any system which degrades that dignity for the sake of profit, efficiency, sales growth, increased market share, government control, or the prioritization of corporate interests over the interests of the common good. 
This points to an important truth about any theology of work. It can never be about merely consoling people for the circumstances in which they find themselves, while at the same time accepting the fundamental rightness of the economic system which produces the circumstances for which consolation is required. Rather, a theology of work must aid in the activation of working people toward the transformation of their circumstances and the addressing of issues of systemic injustice. In other words, it must enable people to access the dynamic potential for change contained within the gospel. The second issue proceeds from the first and involves the reduction of the prophetic dimension of any theology of work to the mere smoothing out of the rough edges of a given economic system. In other words, having accepted that this or that system of economic organization is fundamentally right, this is theology of work reduced to the task of humanizing work, of applying to it an outward appearance of grace while leaving the systemic injustices intact. But this only begs the question, how does one humanize an inherently inhuman working context? The answer is that you can't, and any attempt to do otherwise is to try and sanctify the idolatry of economic necessity. The point is that from the perspective of Christian theology, justice is not merely a matter of doing good or of being good. It is a matter of making active in the here and now the transformative liberation of human life that is the central message of the gospel. And if that involves overthrowing an economic pillar, which conventional wisdom argues is either essential or unavoidable, then that is the prophetic task to which a Christian theology of work must set itself. Thirdly, we come to the issue of pastoral care. If a theology of work proceeds from accepting the fundamental rightness of an economic system, and if as a consequence of doing so it simply attempts to humanize that system instead of prophetically critiquing it in a way that will bring about transformative liberation, then what does this mean for pastoral care within such a theological framework? I would suggest that there are a number of consequences. One is that such a theology of work cannot take seriously the harm that is done to individuals and communities as a consequence of systemic injustice. Another is that such a failure serves only to entrench existing structures of power and the vulnerability of individuals and communities to those structures. Finally, and most critical of all, such an approach reduces Christian pastoral care to those forms of redress which the system itself recognizes as legitimate. Pastoral care in this context becomes merely a matter of replugging people back into the system by which they have been victimized, helping them to succeed within that system in terms which the system itself recognizes as legitimate instead of rearranging the system itself in order to address justice issues. The reality which all these approaches to a theology of work have in common is they neglect the fact that the word economy 
is a deeply theological term. Indeed, that for most of history, economy was a specifically Christian theological phrase before the technocrats got a hold of it in the early modern era and made it about balances of trade and currency valuations and capital flows. But the theological dimensions of economy go right back to the biblical witness and the gospel imperative that defies the logic of modern economic theory and practice in order to bring all people into the orbit of grace. This is the understanding of economy upon which the pastoral care practices emerging from any theology of work must operate. What all of the above reveals is that far too many theologies of work, including and perhaps especially those emerging from the evangelical Christian tradition, are reflective of the prerogatives and priorities that characterize managerial, entrepreneurial and corporate perspectives and which proceed from the assumptions and privileges that inform those perspectives. This immediately excludes the voices of those who, whose experience of work and economy not only differs from those who are the beneficiaries of present economic structures, but who have in, have in fact been harmed by those structures and had their humanity degraded. This exclusion does not enable prophetic critique or transformative liberation, and merely cements the comfortable and the privileged in their comfort and privilege. Having, as it were, stated the negative case, having outlined those aspects of present theologies of work which I react against, let me briefly describe what I think any Christian theology of work should actually talk about. In doing so, I am not going to pretend for a moment that this is all a theology of work should speak to. Rather, it seems that what I am about to describe are the critical elements any theology of work must have if it is to meet the minimum required criteria of being Christian. The first thing a properly Christian theology of work must do is acknowledge and lament the harm experienced by individuals and communities through modernity's construction of work and economy. This includes both those manifestations of work that are exploitative and dehumanizing as well as the appropriation of the very idea of economy away from its theological foundations into its present technocratic character. In other words, an acknowledgement that our very understanding of what work and economy are and the role they play in human life are profoundly broken, alienated from the covenantal relationship with ourselves, with each other, and with the natural world into which we are called by God. The scriptural witness gives ample evidence of lament that is recognition of sin, of alienation from God, that in recognizing its own brokenness seeks reconciliation and justice. Lament in the context of a Christian theology of work 
is not wallowing in self-pity, but a recognition of the reality that we have made work and economy not a means to the end of human flourishing, but an end in itself, and in doing so we have stripped both of their humanity. This recognition is itself a call to turn around, to repent, before we irreversibly reduce work and economy to inhuman processes of alienation and enslavement. The second thing a Christian theology of work must do is name and confront the sin of systemic injustice that lies at the heart of work-related harm. This is an extremely challenging prospect for the modern church, precisely because our construction of church and modernity is thoroughly appropriated by our understanding of institutional identity. We have ceased to understand church as an economy in the theological sense, seeing it instead as an institution possessing the same characteristics as the institutions of government, society and the corporate sector. Indeed, the church as institution practices many of the same evils as institutions within corporatized capitalism up to and including exploitative and dehumanizing labor practices. But as Christians we are called to confront and name the reality of this sin, to locate its identity not just out there in the world, but within our own backyard. Only by doing so can we speak with any integrity to the sin which infects both work and economy in the wider world. Only once we have named our own sins can we name the sins of others. The next feature of a Christian theology of work is that it necessarily challenges business and church leaders to align their labor practices with the covenantal flourishing envisaged by the gospel. This involves radically overhauling our understanding of concepts like success, common good, profit, growth, flourishing, wealth and productivity, along with reorienting our views about the meaning of work and economy in human life. Too often our understanding is reduced to a technocratic level that holds little if any understanding of what genuine human enrichment looks like and which actively harms people by equating legitimacy and authenticity with inhumanly materialistic values and outcomes. The capacity for work to sustain the physical survival of our species becomes deformed into an all-consuming obsession with production and acquisition, stunting our understanding of what it means to be human and, ironically, damaging the biosphere to the extent where our survival as a species is now under threat. Similarly, the church, appropriated by the values of corporate capitalism, views mission and ministry as a numbers game expressed in the size of congregations and in the health of its finances. Thus a good deal of hand-wringing occurs in church circles over the alleged death of the church, when the reality is the church died, at least spiritually in my view, the day it decided its success in spreading the gospel was aligned with the number of people putting money into its collection plates. Finally, a Christian theology of work 
must recover the theological meaning of economy and work in order to challenge the prevailing technocratic character of economic theory and practice. And in a sense, this is precisely the end to which the aforementioned characteristics are oriented, reshaping our ideas of what work and economy are, the role they play in human life and the standards by which we measure the extent to which we have achieved the kind of optimal human life which they envisage. Ultimately, however, this aspect of the theology of work must also be directed toward uncovering the poverty of our present misunderstandings, a poverty which clothes itself in the garments of quasi-scientific respectability without any of the rigour of the scientific method, and which is appropriated by vested interests for the benefit of an increasingly narrow section of society. This poverty exists not just in material terms, but in spiritual and existential terms as well, in terms of what we think it is to be human, the bases upon which our authenticity as humans stand, what we understand to be the nature and purpose of our relationships with one another, and how these are legitimately expressed in both social and individual terms. Our impoverished reductionist understanding of economy impacts the totality of who we are as human beings, and it is not until we understand how poor we really are that we'll be able to identify where true enrichment might lie. I hope this discussion outlines both the negative and positive aspects of the theology of work, what I am reacting against and hope to avoid, and what I am positively trying to achieve. If all of this can be summed up in a single value statement, it is to give voice to those voices which are usually excluded from any discussion of work, theology, faith and economics, the voices of those whose experiences which descend from and represent a different lived experience to what is often presented as either mainstream or normative. I use the phrase often presented advisedly as it seems to me that what is offered as a re representative reality of work and economy in truth represents a minority reality, one which occupies a position of privilege and which seeks to preserve that privilege over against the voices of dissent. This is the world of the middle-class professional, of the managerial class and the successful entrepreneur. This is the voice of those who are invested in modernity's construction of work and economy, precisely because they have profited from it, and who therefore have a vested interest in resisting change. That said, I don't want to present alternative voices merely for the sake of oppositionalism or from a spirit of belligerent contrarianism. Rather, I want to give voice to the spirit of prophetic critique that challenges both church and world to rediscover the liberating potential of the gospel, to the church to help it understand the extent to which it has been appropriated by the norms and conventions of modernity and how this captivity makes it less 
and not more relevant to modern society and to the world to help it clearly see how the standards and values which it regards as both normative and enriching in fact impoverish our humanity, alienating us from ourselves and from one another. And so, with these goals and objectives in mind, I leave you to ponder this statement of intent. But for now, that's all for this edition of Ercasia Special. For more information or to leave feedback, visit the website at www.ergasia.podbean.com. That's www.ergasia.podbean.com. I am your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. This has been an Ergasia special episode. For more information, go to www.ergasia.podbean.com.